Yeah. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the, the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth from my new home in Saidia, Morocco. Well, it's not that new. I've been here since late July. And today is Friday, January 26th, 2024. Just a few hours ago, the International Court of Justice ruled that South Africa has presented a plausible case that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. The ICJ ruled that indeed it has jurisdiction, that it orders Israel to prevent acts of genocide and to take measures to prevent genocide and report back to it about what it has done in one month. It has ruled that Israel must prevent and punish incitement to genocide. Israel must allow humanitarian aid into Gaza and it obliges Israel to protect Palestinian lives. It does not order a ceasefire, but actually uh, there are questions about whether the court can order a ceasefire, which is really a, uh, a military term, rather than ordering remedies for genocide, which is this current case. So uh, this is a historic ruling, and to discuss it on tonight's show, I'm very pleased to bring on two great American spiritual leaders who, in fact, are both Muslim uh, spiritual leaders, that they should both be better known than they are, and maybe I can contribute to pushing that along a little bit. Uh, although my first guest, Kabir Helminski, is fairly well known. Anybody who's ever looked at the Sufism section of their local bookstore has probably uh, seen some of his work He's one of the great interpreters of Jalalin uh, Rumi, and he has translated him. He and, and kind of Coleman Barks are the two big names in Rumi studies. He has done uh, all kinds of amazing work that I was following long before I came to Islam, and it's great to have him on the show tonight. And then in the second, I will bring on John Andrew Morrow, another great American Muslim spiritual leader who is the number one force uh, alongside Charles Upton, of course in pushing the Covenants Initiative, uh, publicizing the Covenants of Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, to protect uh, the other religions. So let's uh, let's talk about Gaza and other things, um, starting with Kabir Helminski. So welcome, Kabir. How are you? Uh, thank you, Kevin. Happy to be here for the first time. Yes, I'm honored to have you. It's been uh, a long time since I thought I should get you on the show. And so here you are, and it's just hours after the ICJ issued its ruling, uh, ordering Israel to stop uh, committing apparent acts of genocide in Gaza. And, you know, you're, you're well known. See, you're almost as well known for taking a spiritually uplifting approach to the problems of the world, as I am not quite as well known for uh, screaming at the top of my lungs about the problems of the world. Uh, both both of us from within a basically Islamic Sufi worldview. And so how, how can we 
take an uplifting spiritual view of this situation in Gaza? Hmm. Well, that's a big question, isn't it? <sighs> yes, you know, my own work uh, is primarily in the field of what I might call applied spirituality. It's within a traditional Islamic framework. And at the same time, I believe it's we're sharing universal truths and training hearts and minds to uh, know what a human being truly is and what the human being's relationship to reality, to the divine reality actually is. And so this is really my focus, and it's also within Rumi's tradition, a 700-year-old tradition. And so when I speak today, I'm not speaking in the name of any organization, not in the name of my spiritual lineage or the nonprofit Threshold Society, which uh, where we do our work, but I'm speaking solely in, as an individual. And we have to take the broadest possible perspective on human affairs today, both in order to be fair and just and also not to lose hope. And this decision by the uh, International Court of Justice is a welcome sign that humanity uh, as a whole is able to um, rule, is able to um, hmm. right, enable, is in a position to name this atrocity for what it is and to call for justice. Always we want to remember that our fight is not um, against individual souls, though individual souls can go astray. Individual souls can be instruments of great injustice. But we're not the judge of anyone. And from a spiritual perspective, we could say that we have no enemies as the prophets themselves had no enemies. Truth be known, anyone who is an enemy of the prophets is really an enemy to themselves. So we are on the side of Abraham and Solomon and David and Moses all of the Hebrew prophets and Jesus, son of Mary and prophet Muhammad, peace be upon them all. And um, those prophets have often taken a very critical view of their own peoples and have spoken up against injustice. And at the same time, there's no place for hatred in this hatred is a toxin that would poison us. So it's not easy, I know, and we 
we feel anger and rage and, and, you know, we just want to be able to, um, take the weapons from the hands of criminals wherever they are. And, um, but hopefully this ruling by the court of justice is one step in that direction. And as uh, depressing and painful as these recent months have been, there we also take hope in that this could be a turning point for humanity. More and more people are waking up. Uh, more and more people are becoming aware of the 75-year history of the uh, occupation of Palestine. And uh, there's always a mystery in when we see the, the fact that uh, evil exists in this world. And what is evil? Evil is cruelty and injustice. And even more so, evil is taking pleasure in cruelty and injustice. Um, so this is what we're dealing with. And what's called for, I think, is greater awareness. But from this vast perspective of that includes the era in which we live, in which uh, <clears throat> some of us would like to believe that this is not an era of doom. Uh, it's not the end times, uh, that it is, may it be an era of awakening. So I'll pause there, Kevin. Well, that's a great uh, introduction. And, and that that introduction uh, raises the question uh, that you, you raised in your Huffington Post article, what would a moral Israel look like? Now, it's interesting that right now the world is seeing an unveiled uh, true face of Israel, which is obviously uh, grotesquely immoral Israel. Uh, some of us even suspect that Israel in its current incarnation is basically satanic in that it's, a, it's one of the many offshoots of a denatured uh, and, uh, and, and a satanic turn from, uh, from Jewish messianic uh, millenarianism. That, you know, we see Shabtai Zvi's movement from 400 years ago, uh, and then Jacob Frank picking that up. Uh, these, are, these are people who are explicitly um, against God and uh, in favor of all sorts of abominations. And it seems that those who thought that Jews should plant a Jewish state in the Holy Land against the will of God and maybe force God's hand uh, to bring them their Messiah and so on. That, that whole line of thought seems basically satanic. And so now we're seeing the unveiling of a basically satanic state of Israel uh, with its leader Netanyahu um, very much in the running. If, you know, he, like I said years ago, I think he might have my vote for, uh, you know, in the, in the Antichrist <laughs> election. Uh, so, uh, how do we get there to this vision of what a moral Israel would look like in, in light of this unveiling that we're witnessing right now? 
Yes. Um, well, a little background here. Some years ago, I was a regular contributor to the Huffington Post at their invitation. Typically, it was in areas of spirituality. And at a certain point, I think it was maybe around 2014, I felt moved to write an article called What Would a Moral Israel Look Like? Because I wanted to take the most positive approach that I could imagine instead of just condemning Zionism uh, to really reason in a positive way and take the most positive outlook. So I wrote an article that was willing to detail the cruelties and terrorist actions of the Zionist state. It was clear in spelling those things out because at that time, I think, uh, you know, the Obama administration had just come in and they were mowing the lawn, as they say, uh, in in Israel. I mean, they were mowing the lawn in Palestine, which means they were bombing and killing thousands of people. And the Obama administration went along with this, and I was horrified. Still, I wanted to present the most positive vision I could. I submitted the article, and I waited, and there was nothing but silence was not published. It was not featured in Huffington Post. So that was the end of my relationship to Huffington Post, although they kept my name uh, as a uh, as a writer. And I had the privilege of being able to post on their website. And so it was maybe almost two years later that I thought, well, <laughs> let me post the article so that at least it would be online somewhere and people could refer to it. So there it is, and there it remains to this day. If you do a search for the title, What Would a Moral Israel Look Like? You can find it there on the Huffington Post. And uh, one of the interesting things that came about was that, you know, we hear again and again that Hamas is calling for the annihilation of Israel and the killing of all Jews. And I thought, I'd better look into this and see, you know, what's, what is, what does the Hamas charter call for? And, um, so, I don't know how many people have read the Hamas Charter, but it seems like I haven't heard this, what I'm about to read to you, I haven't heard this mentioned by anyone in all the years since. I hear uh, this charge against Hamas being repeated and repeated, and no one actually quotes the Hamas Charter, which says about relations with non-Muslims, here it is, Hamas is a humane movement, by the way, I'm not advocating for Hamas. I'm simply quoting their charter. Hamas is a humane movement which cares for human rights and is committed to the tolerance inherent in Islam 
as regards attitudes towards other religions. It is only hostile to those who are hostile towards it or stand in its way in order to disturb its moves or to frustrate its efforts. Under the shadow of Islam, it is possible for the members of the three religions, Islam, Christianity and Judaism, to go coexist in safety and security. So, if any I, of this I, I didn't hear anything about gas chambers there. <laughs> no, no. You know, and uh, as far as the gas chambers go, people who say, oh, this is, you know, such a complex situation. What can we say about it? What can we say about these injustices? I would answer by saying uh, there's nothing complex about the gas chamber issue. If we were faced with that today, faced with Jews and others, Poles and others being marched into gas chambers. I'm sorry. This is not a complex issue. Well, there, there, I, Kabir, I, I hate to get you in trouble by mentioning the fact that there actually is it, the issue of how many gas chambers, if any, there were and how they actually would have operated if they had operated. It's very, very complex. But we'll set that aside for now uh, and, agree, and agree that there was a, a, an ethnic cleansing of uh, people in, in German-occupied Europe under a racist philosophy and that Jews did suffer horribly from that and were sent to camps. So. Yes. Yes. So, um, yes. So that's the Hamas charter. And the question remains, how will uh, the people and and government of the Zionist state, how will it come to uh, a humane and humanitarian position? And recently I was been involved in two international conferences, both of them organized by the Center for Shared Civilizational Values along with the Nadatul Ulama, which is the largest Muslim organization in the world with something like 200 members. And the Nadatul Ulama, which is calling for a recontextualization of Islamic law, Islamic law which has been frozen from the medieval period and which this group itself is, is charging that there are many elements in Islamic law that are out of sync with reality today. And Islam, Islamic law or fiqh needs to be re-examined, re, restated, uh, given the civilization we now live in. So anyway, there were two events, and one was in Jakarta in November. Uh, it was a gathering of uh, spiritual authorities from all the religions and many countries, especially the G20 countries, because uh, the Center for Civilizational Values, Shared Civilizational Values, was a outcome of the G20 of 2022. Anyway, in those the talks that I gave there, I tried to 
envision a language and a perspective from the highest possible level. Uh, and even though these meetings were called in response to the crisis that began on October 7th, um, we were really addressing all of the crises that humanity is facing today and in terms of violence. And I thought, what what can I focus on as a universal value that needs to be underlined today and that is indisputable, even though its significance and value may be lost? And the central concept I came upon was the concept of human dignity. And it seems obvious, seems like a no-brainer that human dignity is something we should all recognize. Uh, and, you know, in Islam, human dignity is uh, explicitly uh, such an important value. We arrange, we attempt to arrange our human life in such a way that our own human dignity and the human dignity of others is protected protected. So if this becomes a criteria for evaluating the actions of governments on this planet, let us look at what the Zionist state is doing right now. How does human dignity factor into that? And how is this an egregious violation of, of human dignity? not just for the, you know, mass atrocity that's going on, but for the really offenses against personal sovereignty and human dignity. And just as within the Nadatul Ulama, which started this humanitarian movement, humanitarian Islam movement, just as Nadatul Ulama was calling for Muslims to look at at their current understanding of Islamic law and to look at whatever is being done in the name of Islam and to take a critical look, to be self-critical, to begin with ourselves first and to ask where have we been unjust, unjust and um, where do we need to change our formulations and our behavior so one could hope that the leaders and people of Israel will come to take a look at themselves and to remember this central universal value of human dignity. And the second universal value that I wanted to emphasize, and there was a second gathering at Princeton University on the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where again, a group of people, religious leaders from around the world convened and reflecting on the state of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, where does it stand today? And the concept that I tried to bring in there was the concept of the sacred. Because I think one of the problems in our world today is that 
we lack an adequate language for uh, a language to include and express the true metaphysics of existence. In other words, what is real is not only this material dimension, but there is an invisible dimension and everything truly of value is in that invisible dimension. What do I mean? Well, everything that is most precious to us in our daily life is not uh, our bank account or the stocks we own or the car we drive or the house we live in or uh, how we look and how we dress and all of those things. What is truly of value for the human being are the relationships we have, our sense of personal integrity, uh, our sense of beauty, our sense of justice. All of these things exist within the dimension of the sacred. And we could even approach someone who claims to be an utter materialist, agnostic or atheist, doesn't matter, and pose the question, is there anything you hold sacred? So here the word sacred does not imply necessarily a religious system or a supernatural belief, but it does imply uh, a sense of value. And where do we derive that sense of value? So for me, this has been an important work. I mean, it, in terms of beginning to formulate a language with which we can confront the challenges to our humanness that we face today, the challenges we face from sheer manifestations of evil, and like you say, the satanic or demonic, which is not to be discounted. There is, at a certain level of reality, forces of darkness that challenge uh, everything that is sacred and true. Uh, so we acknowledge that. and But we combat that with light, ultimately with love, because love is the final value, the final transformer of everything limited and dark and cruel. And the, we have to trust in the power power of love, and we extend that love even to those who are murdering us. And um, even while we take a stand for justice, and we are, we're not required to be passive in relationship to those evils, but we may need to find uh, intelligent means to take the power away from the criminals. And I think really that's what we're facing. We're facing criminal conspiracies worldwide. And um, so enforcing, reinforcing, valuing the human dignity and the notion of the sacred may begin to formulate a language with which we can talk about what is truly important in human life, important for our future, as we face 
a possible post-human future, a possible transhumanist future, when we face technologies or a, a technocratic totalitarianism that uh, not only neglects these human values, but may in fact be an enemy of them. So what's happening in Israel and Palestine is part of this scenario that we face in the world today, but it is uh, an unprecedented uh, and egregious crime that's being streamed online and uh, for all humanity to see and for people to make up their minds. And um, yes, and on that basis to decide how to raise their voices, how to make themselves heard, but always by not necessarily creating enemies of those individual souls who we are not the judge of, you know, they will be judged by spiritual laws ultimately. Um, but we can judge actions. We can judge policies. And, um, it can be a voice always for affirming the, the fact that what the Zionist state is doing now could very well be uh, leading to its own demise, leading to its own destruction. And there are spiritual laws that operate in this reality. And uh, let's say we want the best for the innocent people of Israel. How I wish I could look on my, on more of my Jewish brothers and sisters and look on them with affection and respect. As I already do with many, you know, I say how many Jewish people are already in our lives and people we love and support. Uh, but how I would like to be able to look even on with the Star of David and feel a warmth in my heart and respect for their prophets and an honor for the Torah, which as a Muslim I can honor, um, and not right and not be repulsed by what we know is happening today. I mean, yeah, I, I, I really would prefer not to be in this role of being the guy who's pointing out the downside or the dark side of, of Jewish culture and uh, Jewish tribal power and collective Jewish actions. I would, because I certainly see the positive side of that culture as well and would much prefer to, to, uh, you know, have, have a balanced, uh, Jewish culture out there. So I didn't have to be <laughs> causing trouble by uh, being willing to criticize it when everybody else is, is terrified to. Um, and they, you know, I would love to see the changes happen that could make that possible. But in any case, given the, the, the situation, the historical situation that we're in today, Kabir, you mentioned Hamas's charter. You read a little bit of it and it, I, Hamas is vilified as being supposedly Islamist. 
This is a word that the non-Islamic Western world has sort of demonized. That is, any Muslims who are involved in politics and trying to pursue their values through politics are demonized as Islamists. And of course, some there are some Muslims who are, who are bringing Islam into politics in a way that isn't particularly constructive, and then there are many others who are very constructive. Uh, Imran Khan, for example, is is incredibly courageous, and his courage comes out of his uh, his Islam. Uh, and there are so many other examples as well. But you mentioned this need for human dignity and for the sacred. It occurs to me that humanism, secular humanism, which is the guiding political philosophy of the West, uh, and it's tied in, of course, with progressivism and materialism, uh, that that philosophy does uh, hold, or the best of it, holds up the dignity of the human being as its highest value. But its liberalism holds up the so-called dignity of the human being to sort of basically choose anything as its highest value. And that has has been criticized because it, it basically puts the sacred and the anti-sacred or, or the you know the the godly and the satanic on the same plane example being the US constitution protecting uh theistic religions and satanism on the same plane and, and satanists have gone to court so they can organize after school clubs <laughs> uh and and you know won some court judgments there so so Pure liberalism, you know, secular liberalism pretends to stand up for human dignity, but ends up being the so-called dignity to pursue whatever choice one wishes. And that tends to inevitably lead towards the lowest common denominator. And and then the sacred, I think is, Islamic politics holds up the sacred as, as the highest value, uh, not the human. And that's where it really diverges from, from the Western paradigm. And I'm wondering if maybe there could be almost a, a kind of a, a synthesis in which the best elements of that Western humanistic tradition uh, were somehow compatible with and part of a political order that held the sacred as its highest value, as Islamic political orders do. I know that's a very abstract political philosophical question, but maybe maybe you can run with it one way. It's or not abstract. To me, it's not abstract at all. And I would say that it was my entry into the tradition of Sufism that taught me what true humanness is. And I remember my own uh, first uh, uh, beloved Murshid, meaning my first spiritual guide in the Sufi tradition. One of the first things he said was, you know, we need to work to become human. So our true humanness is not something we're born with, but it's something we aspire to. And in Rumi's tradition, and in the, especially in the spiritual tradition of Sufism, and even more specifically in the Anatolian expression uh, of Sufism, is this profound regard for the human being, and that in fact, uh, we are oriented toward um, the realization of our humanness as a reali- the the realization of our intimacy with the divine. That is only through entering the heart uh, consciously, through putting aside 
the superficial layers of thought and emotion and going deeper and deeper into the soul that we come to that point of connection where our individual human soul is in intimate relationship with the divine love and the divine intelligence. Um, and so this is a practical teaching. It's not, it doesn't necessarily require even religious belief or supernatural concepts, although the primary sources of the Islamic Sufi tradition do provide a beautiful context for this work of becoming fully human. But becoming fully human is about awakening and developing our latent human capacities under divine grace and guidance. And this is done through mysticism. And by mysticism, we mean a faculty innate to the human being, but not obvious to the intellect or senses by which we come to know and experience our relationship with true reality all the way down to the depths of the subconscious mind. I realize that's <laughs> quite a mouthful. <laughs> it's, not, it's a pretty inspiring mouthful anyway. <laughs> uh, and so this is the beautiful journey we're on. And my brothers and sisters in Israel are also on that journey. And if mistakes are made, uh, if we make mistakes, if anyone makes mistakes, we will learn from those mistakes. The mercy, the mercy of reality is such that uh, our mistakes are a feedback mechanism. We suffer. We will suffer when we break spiritual laws. And um, we may despair. We may see that our actions are not leading to the well-being that we imagined they would. That may reorient us toward something entirely different. So one can hope uh, for the many countries right now the, the, that are, shall we say, seem to have lost their moral compass. And we're not just talking about one, but we're talking about many. And um, we can pray and hope that more and more people will be awakening both to the, the factual nature of injustice and also um, to the possibility that we are all guided, we are all blessed, whether we know it or not, uh, by this divine reality and that humanity is going through a painful process of realization. This is where the hope lies, I believe, and it's up to what I like to call the custodians of consciousness to, to be present, to make their voices heard, uh, to be the enemy of no one, even while we confront injustice, cruelty, all those crimes, but to keep our heart, you know, free of hatred. Um, okay. 
Well, uh, the uh, your your um, spirituality is is grounded in Islam, and there is of course a debate going on. There's always been a debate going on about how do we get our values from the Islamic uh, scripture. In fact, I'll be talking about that a bit in, in the second hour uh, with John Andrew Morrow. Uh, he just wrote a book on Islam and slavery, arguing that even though slavery was ubiquitous uh, and taken for granted, and it wasn't out and out directly banned by the Quran at that time, of course, most people would never have been able to even imagine such a thing as banning slavery, which was the basic to you know human production and civilization. Uh, but it, the Quran does uh, urge the freeing of slaves, and its values are compatible with getting rid of slavery, but it's not laying that down kind of immediately. So sort of the Quran actually banned alcohol in stages during that process of its revelation. And, and so one school of thought, which Dr. Murrow represents, I would tend to agree with, is that when we look at the scriptural materials, we see that God is telling us to do the best we can with what we've got, <laughs> you know, uh, and that seems to be, uh, 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 you know, it's a kind of approach that one can actually put into practice as opposed to, it's, it's very, very hard to, uh, to follow the, the Christian ideal of turning the other cheek and kind of giving it all up and wandering, not knowing where the next meal is coming from, trusting in God to give the next meal. And some people do, are called to do that. Uh, but there's also another uh, kind of a middle path of, of doing the best with what's available. Maybe you can comment a little bit on that and, and the you know, interpretation of Islamic scripture that works for all times and places. Yeah. No, thank you for bringing this up and, and I'll, refer back to the Nadatul Ulama and their humanitarian Islam movement and uh, there is a something called the Declaration of Humanitarian Islam that is now maybe seven years old, something like that. This is from the world's largest Muslim organization. And I want to read you a couple of quotes that are at the very beginning of the document, which the document itself might be about 20 pages long and goes into some detail. But right at the beginning of it um, is a discussion and distinction made between the term sharia and fiqh. Sharia being the broad path of the prophet's of morality, more or less equivalent to the Ten Commandments, and do as you would like to be done by and done to, and um, and thick, which is the human interpretation of divine revelations, which is time-bound, bound to particular societies, and uh, and how these are often confused. So there's a quote here uh, from. President Abdurrahman Wahid, who was president of Indonesia, right at a critical turning point uh, as Indonesia was moving from a dictatorship into democracy. It was a very uh, uh, vulnerable moment. And luckily, 
President Wahid, who was called the blind Sufi president. He was blind, at least partially blind. And he helped guide Indonesia into this new period of <coughs> of democratic rule. And he was the leader of the Nadatul Ulama. He says, Sharia properly understood expresses and embodies perennial values. Islamic law, on the other hand, is the product of interpretation, which depends on circumstances and needs to be continuously reviewed in accordance with ever-changing circumstances. To prevent Islamic law from becoming out of date, rigid and non-correlative, not only with Muslims' contemporary lives and conditions, but also with the underlying perennial values of Sharia itself. Okay, so that's from President Wahid. I, uh, it turns out that I'm also created in the, uh, I'm sorry, quoted in the opening pages of this declaration, um, along with the major leaders of this movement. How that happened, it's sort of accidental, but I was I was asked by them to uh, supply some quotes on Islamic education, and I gave them some some words, and they took my words and they put what I'm about to read you. They put it right up there on the opening pages of the Declaration of Humanitarian Islam. I guess it captured something that they believe to be important. So this is my quote that really has to do, I think it comes to the core of your question. Fourteen centuries ago, in the only use of the word Sharia in the Quran, God states that humanity was given a broad path of direction, quoting from the Quran here. This path of moral guidance and wisdom leads to fulfilling the purpose of human life, to know the spiritual nature and true dimensions of reality, the essence of which is love. This path is summarized in Surah Maryam, verse 96. Truly, those who attain to faith and work toward healing and reconciliation, the all-compassionate God will endow with love. Let me read that again. It's so important. Truly, those who attain to faith, or truly those who are faithful, and work toward the righteous deeds of healing and reconciliation, salahati in Arabic, then the all-compassionate, the Rahman, will endow them with love. Muslims are also warned, O you who have attained to faith, if you ever abandon your faith, God will in time bring forth in your place people whom he loves and who love him, humble towards the believers, self-confident to all, towards all who deny the truth, who strive hard in God's cause and do not fear to be censured by anyone who might censure them. Such is God's favor, which he grants unto those whom he wills. And God is infinite, all-knowing. That's the end of the Quranic quote. And then the final sentence, love is the essence of Islam. So, love is the essence of Sharia, because Sharia meaning the broad path toward the well-being and dignity of human life. 
is is the goal of this moral teaching, this teaching about the spiritual nature of reality. And the goals of Islam are to be attained through spiritual transformation, through an awakening of the heart, uh, through an awakening of consciousness, through nothing less, not through theologies, not through dogma, but through a conscious awakening of the heart so that we see the signs of the divine in this theater of divine manifestation and we begin to approach all human beings uh, and all religions as being um, in that unity of purpose in which the divine itself is operating in human affairs to guide us, to uplift us, and also to teach us when we go astray. So, yeah. That's it. It's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, I'm, you know, since I'm, I'm in Morocco and this, uh, the kind of uh, Sufi interpretation of Islam is mainstream here. <laughs> uh, it's maybe the only place in the world where that's true. One of the very few anyway. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about, about that, uh, kind of specific, uh, interpretation or the, the, the uh, special aspects uh, associated with that Sufi tradition and whether they too need to be uh, changed or updated in today's world, the relationship between the Sufi teacher or sheikh and disciple, and then the methods, of the, which most of my audience probably is, does not know very much about this. So how, uh, how, do, uh, how does, does one go about this process of spiritual transformation if one is uh, seeking guidance uh, from, from uh, the Sufi way? No, thank you for asking that that question. And um, I would say that well, first of all, I, sh- I should mention that if you want to explore this further, I should mention our website, which is called Sufism.org. Easy to remember. <laughs> uh, and there you'll find a lot of material about this whole process of transformation and this process of leading toward the fulfillment of our humanness. I personally have not, you know, uh, I've never made religion per se my main objective. I came, you know, out of the consciousness movement and I was always interested in reality and but when I found this beautiful correspondence between the, the best of the Sufi and Islamic tradition, and I saw how that led to uh, a beautiful reality of the human being surrendered to the true reality, um, that I was grateful that there was a tradition which at its best represents something very pure. Now, if asked, is Sufism the same as Islam or is Islam different from Sufism? Um, I once posed this question to an Egyptian friend who had joined our community and I said, why do you need Sufism? 
but isn't Islam enough for you? And he said, because when I met Sufism, I saw Islam being lived as I'd never seen it being lived before. Now, what is this, the distinction between Sufism and Islam? Sufism is a initiatic path. It's a choice. It's not something you're necessarily born into or inherit. You have to intend it. And I would say <clears throat> traditional Sufism is Islam at a different level of consciousness, at an awakened level of presence. And at that awakened level of presence, we gain a perspective on our own egoism that we cannot have when we're functioning within the limits of our own egoism. We need a capacity to step outside of ourselves. Now, this is done in a universal way through true meditation. If we understand what meditation is, meditation is not thinking about something. Uh, though it may mean that in the English language, but meditation as you would find it in Buddhism or Hinduism or Sufism or contemplative Christianity is about silencing the mind of superficial thoughts and our egoistic emotions and moving into moving to the level of presence, presence being a comprehensive awareness through which the human being can all at once encompass thought, feeling, uh, bodily sensations, behavior. It's only at that level of presence, which is a higher state of consciousness and which is becoming rarer and rarer in today's world or has become rarer in the modern uh, West. Um, but it's a state of our true humanness. If we're not in true presence, we are living at the animal or worse yet, the bestial level, or we are robotic. Uh, we're not full human because we're living within the prison of our own limited self, our own egoism. And you don't know what a prison that is until you can step outside of it. So Sufism is a way of stepping outside of it in which we develop the capacities to view our own egoism, to view our own negativity, our desires, our habitual thoughts, and to first observe them, to transcend them, to ultimately transform them. And so this is how the transformation works. And it only works, or it works best, when we're in alignment with a higher reality because our true human nature is sourced in that higher reality and everything that's beautiful and meaningful and virtuous in the human being is sourced in that what I'm calling higher reality or if you like inner reality or deeper reality. Um, okay, well, we, we have uh, only less than a minute left, but I think that, that uh, covered it very, very nicely. And of course, the word Islam means surrender. And when we do the five times daily Salat prayer, we are making a kind of a physical embodiment of surrendering our ego in the way that you talked about. So I think, I think Islam, 
is is very much um, <laughs> it's it's intended to move people in that direction um, that you're you're talking about. But we're we're at the end of the show, so let's send people to Sufism.org for uh, for that, and then people can read the essays that we discussed about uh, Gaza in Palestine by going to truthjihad.com, clicking on the radio link and finding your way to the listing for today's interview with Kabir Helminski. Thank you, Kabir. Uh, Barakallahu feek. Thank you, Kevin. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. That's Kabir Helminski. Back in the next hour with John Andrew Morrow to discuss his book on Islam and slavery. And, of course, we'll get his reaction to the ICJ ruling on the genocide in Gaza.